Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 334, Marta. And indeed, welcome to the new year, 2022. It's going to be a cracker and make no mistake, you're going to love it. Promise. Now, for the next couple of weeks, I thought we might have a bit of fun. Fun with a capital F. Here's the thing. Normally, I rather avoid court scandal and things because, well, it's all over the place. Everybody's at it. So, the court politics of Elizabeth's reign, for example, who's in, who's out, who's breaking wind in front of the Queen, a bit of dudders here, a spot of Deverer there. It's stuff of better popular histories than mine. But I've missed it. So I thought I should give you a dollop of the stuff, like, I don't know, a good big scoop of raspberry ripple ice cream. I have an ulterior motive too, because I have been reading a book called, are you ready? The Politics of Court Scandal in Early Modern England by Alastair Bellany. I saw hundreds of them, you see, piled up in a window display at Waterstones, OBS, just next to one of my old publications, which was piled even higher, Passive, Active and Non-Reciprocal Microwave Circuits by Smokin' Joe Helshane. Just kidding you, obviously. But really, it was an interesting book. And then there's also Literacy and the Social Order by David Cressy, which I have been meaning to share with you for a while. So I can get that to all come together. Because what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is cover a scandal that broke over the Jacobean court. We are going to use that to talk about how, if at all, the great British public got involved or engaged with politics. There is a concept popularised by the work of Jürgen Habermas, which talked about the development of a public space. The idea, 
of a political culture of debate away from state control and supervision that emerges in the late 17th and 18th centuries? Well, the question is, is there any sign of such participation amongst ordinary folk earlier? Or were the goings-on at Westminster simply too remote from their real world, their own monarchical republic of the parish? Connected to that question is the one about whether public opinion was emerging as a source of political authority. You know the sort of thing. People saying, I'm right to advocate this policy because it's popular with the public, which is a whole nother step. So, we are going to consider how and to where news and debate was communicated and how. Oakley-doakley, are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. Or, of course, you can fast forward to episode 336. In June 1615, Ralph Winwood of the Patriot Faction, whose name we have mentioned before, had an interesting interview with a member of the Lincolnshire gentry called Jervis Elwes, a name which is spelled in a thoroughly early modern array of styles. Now, Jervis, rather remarkably, was Lieutenant of the Tower of London. I say remarkably because he was generally seen as being way, way too nice for such a job. But he'd been placed in that job by the Howard faction, as it happens. No one was quite sure why, though that might just turn out to be a reason. Now, Ralph had been digging for dirt, because the death of Thomas Overbury, though a couple of years old now, had not quite disappeared from the political minds of a few. Because there was smoke, ladies and gentlemen, and I know you are all very well aware of what smoke always betokens. That's right. It never exists without fire. People noted that the foulness of the corpse gave suspicion and leaves aspersion that his must have died of the pox or something worse. Not quite sure what's worse than the pox, but there you go. So, there had been goss on the streets of London. Gossip and rumour, my friend, gossip and rumour. One of Overbury's servants claimed his master had been poisoned and that in the tower... This was no secret. (gasps) Libels appeared, one claiming that we dare not say why Overbury died, and the burial of his corpse had been rather hasty. Well, when Winwood was approached by Jervis Elway's patron, the Earl of Shrewsbury, putting in a good word for him, Winwood told him that while he was sure he was a good egg, actually he was personally unwilling to contract a friendship with one upon whom did lie suspicion of Sir Thomas Overbury's death. Well, this appears to have scared the horses, the horses in this case being the tender Jervis, and he assumed that Winwood knew everything and that the appropriate thing to do in a panic was to follow my own personal strategy, actually, which is to blurt. To blurt hard, to blurt early and blurt comprehensively before even pausing to wipe your lips with the back of your hand. Elwes told Winwood that as lieutenant of the tower he had discovered and averted a dastardly attempt by Overbury's keeper, Richard Weston, to poison him. 
He didn't mention any other names, but did say he'd thwarted several attempts until an apothecary boy had evaded his vigilance and administered a poisoned enema, and that it was this that did for Sir Thomas in the end. On September the 10th, after sitting on this news for a while, Ralph Winwood took it to the king, and James, over the objections of Somerset and Suffolk, set Edward Cook, the Chief Justice, to find out the truth of the matter. Well, there are few rats that could have sprinted up this legal drain more quickly than Edward Cook. And he pulled Richard Weston in for questioning and interrogation. But Richard Weston proved a difficult nut to crack and for 17 days denied everything. But on the 18th day of tireless questioning, finally the nut did crack. And he admitted that he had indeed been instructed by a lady called Anne Turner to administer poison to the unfortunate Overbury. Now, Anne Turner, as it happens, was a friend and confidant of, wait for it, Francis Howard, no less, who you will recognise as the squeeze of James's squeeze, the most powerful man in court at the moment, Robert Carr, the Earl of Somerset. <gasps> a scandal reaching to the highest levels of government, I think is the standard TV phrase, is it not? Well, things were broadening out, I make no mistake. Next, Thomas Munson, the man who had recommended Weston for employment in the Tower, was pulled in for questioning too. What motives could he have had for getting Weston placed in such a sensitive job? Cook asked James for more high-powered investigators to help him in his work, people that would allow him to investigate, wait for it, the Earl and Countess of Somerset themselves. When he heard this, Somerset kind of, I don't know, panicked. He legged it from Royston, where the king was, you guessed it, hunting, and he flew to London to defend himself against these vile accusations, this farrago of twisted lies. Then he wrote furiously back to the king, the pen burning the page, accusing the accusers of being a faction driven by political events to remove him from power. He went a good deal too far in his letters, it has to be said, actually threatening the king that all this fuss would lose them the support of the Howards. As if James gave a tinker's curse. As far as he was concerned, he was the font, the lodestone, not the Howards. And to give him his due, James was having none of it anyway, and wrote back, If I should suffer a murder, if it be so, to be suppressed and plastered over to the destruction of both my soul and reputation, I am no Christian. A man of principle was our Jimmy, it has to be said, to his credit. On the 17th of October, Cook and his commissioners had convinced themselves that the Earl and Countess of Somerset might well be guilty as charged, and the axe fell. A formal message arrived, telling Robert and Francis that they were under house arrest and were to be retained, Somerset at Whitehall, the Countess at Blackfriars. Somerset immediately started to destroy or conceal letters, changing the dates on some of them, though later changing his mind, it has to be said. But that really wouldn't play well in court. I mean, that doesn't look like the actions of an innocent man, does it? Though in the historian Gardiner's opinion, they don't really prove any guilt, just don't look very good. Meanwhile, Anne Turner, 
had also been taken into custody. The noose was doing what nooses get great pleasure from doing and tightening. But could it really be so? Poor old Somerset, of course. In the words of Fagin, all his friends and companions turned out to be, have been nothing but villains and thieves. On the 20th of October, the Spanish ambassador wrote that he has not a man left to take his part, and they begin to say that he gave poison to Prince Henry, who is dead, and a hundred other things they will prove, though they never took place. Now, before we proceed with the proceedings, or indeed begin the begin, what does that mean and why do people say it? Shall we just have the dramatis personae so that you have everything in ordinung, or at least what Edward Cook believed was in ordinung? Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall again begin. The principal authors of this horrible, horrible murder were supposed to be Frances Howard, the Countess of Somerset, and her hub, the Earl of Somerset, Robert Carr. Their tool to achieve this was poisoning. And to achieve their wicked and impious ways, they employed a chain of accessories. Richard Weston was a jailer, obviously crucial for access, and indeed trying to administer the poison, and so, in effect, the actual murderer. Though there was also an apothecary boy who had administered a poisoned enema. Ew! Then there was Mistress Anne Turner, Anne Turner was a confidante of Francis Howard, the widow of a doctor, a businesswoman, who procured the poisons for her friend from one James Franklin, a deeply unreliable, cunning man of bad character and reputation of Maidstone in Kent. I always suspected there was something dodgy behind the neck curtains in Maidstone. I could just never put my finger on it. Now I have. And then... There was Jervis Elwes, spiller of beans, who had been placed as a lieutenant of the tower, who claimed to have tried to prevent all this. But did he really try? Or was he actually an accomplice? There were some other players on the fringe. So Thomas Munson, for example, who had introduced Jervis Elwes and recommended him for the post of lieutenant. Meanwhile, the various information gatherings of Edward Cook and his team... The web of intrigue and rumour had led to other nebulous but serious worries. Witchcraft. Popish plots. You don't get far in early morning in England without a popish plot rearing its ugly head. On the 19th of October, the principal, the murderer, was arraigned at the Guild Hall in London, Richard Weston. Now, the facts were these that Weston had received poisons from the hands of others. He had tried to administer them to Overbury, though Overbury had not died inconveniently, and then apparently an apothecary boy had achieved the objective. Now, the historian Gardner doesn't talk much about this mysterious young man, but I do read on the intertubes that he was an apprentice known only as William, who fled to the United Provinces, was pursued and forced to write a confession. This came from a blog, I cannot verify, but the link to the very well-presented article is in the footnotes to the transcript of this episode on the History of England website, which I commend unto you all as the source of all light and reason. I exaggerate a little, obviously. Anyway, the thing is, 
Richard Weston was clearly innocent, wasn't he? I mean, let's not messing around about this. I mean, Jervis Elwood said he'd prevented him from poisoning Overbury anyway. And even if he hadn't, well, the inconvenient fact that Overbury didn't die until William became involved with Overbury's knicker area seems to suggest that Weston was at best guilty of some lesser crime. But look, consider this from Edward Cook's view with his eyes on the prize of fame. You do not win international fame by putting apothecary boys behind bars. And under English law, I am told, at the time anyway, you can't convict folks of accessory to murder if the principal has not been convicted of murder. Not sure if that's still true. Answered on a postcard, I know there are many talented legal eagles who listen to my Uriah Heap of a podcast. So, our cook was very keen to get his big fish and to get his big fish, he needed the little fish. And those particular big fish were whoppers. Couldn't be more humongous. The Earl of Zamorzat and the Countess of Zamorzat, until a few weeks ago, the most powerful people in the land under the king. As it were, matron. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is merely by way of an example of the kind of smutty, double entendre so beloved of a genre of English comedy which we were discussing on the things that made England at the time of writing. Boom, and as it were, tish. Now, I know I'm quite frankly noodling at this point, but Samuel Rawson Gardner, by the way, the historian I mentioned, whose account is still probably the most thorough of the scandal and trial, was a 19th century historian. He came from Alsford in Hampshire, which is a lovely, lovely part of the world. And he lived from 1829 to 1902 and nurtured the most magnificent beard. He was an Oxford man, though spent some years in the wilds and wilderness that is King's College London. He was, of course, a big fan of the English legal system, which was part of the English zeitgeist at the time. And his appalled horror at Edward Cook's performance still echoes down the ages. At the present day, a lawyer who should have a hand in drawing up such an indictment as this, or in allowing it to be pressed against a prisoner, would undoubtedly be guilty of the most deliberate act of wickedness which it is possible for a man to commit. So, take that, Edward Cook, Chief Justice and Constitutional Hero. Kapow! Anyway, there was Richard Weston, standing in front of the commissioners at the Guildhall, and already there was a lot of public interest. By turning over this affair to criminal proceedings, the King had turned this case into a public performance. The Guildhall is a very large space indeed, used for enormous feasts by the great and the good merchant class of London. We don't know actual numbers who were there, but I don't know. If you could go and see the great and the good hauled over the coals and having the laundry of their lives washed in public, wouldn't you be rather tempted? I mean, in early Stuart England, when there was no telly or parry match or vast newspapers, the internet or so on, these people's lives were vanishingly remote for most of the time. So, fill up your boots time, I'd have thunk. Not that Richard Weston himself was grand, of course. He was just a jailer. Though, please, if you're a prison officer, 
Don't take that the wrong way. Because the point is that the thread that he held led to the woolly-pully of the mighty. So there he stood. But Weston said nout. Weston would not plead. Cook was laying eggs. He needed his conviction. And so vast amounts of pressure were applied to make Weston plead, without which a trial and conviction could not proceed and Cook couldn't have his big moment. Torture was not allowed under common law except for very specific circumstances, but if he didn't plead at all, the difference between torture and non-torture was pretty much purely semantics. Because you would be subject to pen, forte et dure. Just to remind you of what this is, it involved being crushed between increasingly heavy weights. If you died, you would effectively be not guilty. If you weren't prepared to die in agony, then you'd have to plead. Weston was given a week to decide, while minute descriptions were kindly passed to him, of just what Penforte Dure was like. The unavailability, for example, of tin biscuits while the procedure was carried out. Eventually he cracked, and he pleaded not guilty, hoping, in his words, that there was no intention of making a net to catch the little fishes while the great ones were allowed to escape, which is probably a point we'll come back to at some point. So, back to the Guildhall we go. Packed seating, with people probably paying for their tickets, actually, to see the spectacle, which well, that sounds all wrong to the modern ear. Francis Bacon commented afterwards that such was the interest in the trials that the period felt more like a holiday out in the normal world of London, with the people themselves being more willing to be lookers-on in this business rather than proceeders in their own. Over the whole progress of this business, well into 1616, nine public murder trials were held over seven months in three locations in London. Interest remained very high. So, as Weston finally came to trial, Coke described the public audience as an auditory consisting of many thousands. Against this background, and faced with the cream of England's legal team and allowed no counsel of his own, Weston rather wilted in the face of the evidence, and Cook's bloodthirsty and not entirely fair advice to the jury assured a conviction. Weston was sentenced to hang and taken back to imprisonment to wait. Next up in trial was Anne Turner, confidant of Francis Howard. She was something of an offender of gender norms, was our Anne. She had been having an affair with one Arthur Mannering for some years, a name that for every English person of a certain age will forever be associated instead with the Home Guard in World War II, who would certainly not have been capable of having an affair, and if he did, imagine Sergeant Wilson's smirk. Anyway, back to Anne's gender norm busting. She also had three illegitimate children. She was a successful businesswoman with a lucrative monopoly in the supply of a saffron-based starch, which was used to colour ruffs and collars. And she was also accused of running houses of ill repute, brothels. And, top it all, she was accused of witchcraft, would you believe, because of her association with one Dr Simon Foreman, an astrologer and apothecary. So, there is a whole load of stuff going on with Anne Turner. 
But to be fair, she probably was actually guilty of procuring the poisons anyway. Anne stood trial at the King's Bench in Westminster Hall, not at the Guildhall. This was a reasonable space in the southeast corner of the hall, surrounded by scaffolding to create seats, crammed with people. Spookily, while Anne was being interrogated about all her witchcraft goings-on, there was a loud crack from the wooden scaffolding. There was fifteen minutes of chaos and hubbub. The devil is here to save his own, the people cried, as people panicked that the devil had entered the hall until eventually someone mentioned that no one had sold him a ticket, so he couldn't have made it. Well, the jury had no problem whatsoever convicting Anne, and Cook threw the book in sentencing her to death, giving her all the available worst marks that you could give a woman in early modern England. She was, and I quote, a whore, a bored, a sorcerer, a witch, a papist, a felon, and a murderer which pretty much gives her the full house. He also ordered that she should be hanged in the fashionable starched ruffles that she's sold. So that the same might end in shame and detestation. So Anne's death, to some degree maybe, was also partially a fashion statement by the legal profession. Next up in the expanse of the Guildhall this time was Jervis Elwis. And he was really unlucky, surely. I mean, he'd come clean early. He apparently tried to stop the murder. So surely, no case to answer. Or at least, leniency. And actually, his defence was going very well. Though there was an obvious question. Why hadn't he reported anything when he first found Weston trying to poison Overbury? Why did he only come clean afterwards? But even so... It was still going well, but at this point, a bombshell was dropped. James Franklin, a deeply dodgy person anyway, claimed Elwes had written to the Countess, saying of Overbury that the more he was cursed, the better he, Elwes, fared. Well, all was confusion. Elwes stammered and fussed and didn't deny it. The jury saw a guilty man and bang, that was it done. Death. Next up, James Franklin himself, the man from Maidstone, of whose guilt there appears to be little doubt, actually. So although he twisted and turned and laid down smoke like the grass bay making for the river plate, chucking out allusions to nefarious and nebulous grander plots about which he had secret information, he was also sent down. One more person remained to be tried, Thomas Munson, but the evidence again hit against him was thinner than Mr Creosote's after dinner mint, and Cook excitedly thought he had leads for a bigger fish associated with Munson, a Catholic plot, and everybody loves a Catholic plot. So Munson was put on hold until 1616, as were the Zummerzettes. While they all waited, in December 1615, Francis gave birth to their daughter, whom they named Anne. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now then, everyone, I'm going to pause there and take a breath. (sighs) And change the direction of the podcast, which so far is turning out to be a crime procedural, a contribution to the vast world of true crime podcasts. The question we're now going to ask instead is, how far is this scandal engaging the great British public? Was there a great British public at all in any political sense? And what impact did scandals like this have on the view from the margins on the reputation of the court? Was all this just goings-on of the high and mighty up there in the clouds away from normal mortal folk working on the farms in Tanfield, maybe doing a bit of weaving to take to the market at Massam, where they might also take in a pint of black sheep? These are the questions to which we will turn. This is a road paved with good intentions, gentle listeners. Let us follow it whither it leads, and let us hope that Samuel Johnson was just concentrating on chucking out witty one-liners and didn't actually speak from experience about the hell bit. We might start today by talking about the extent of literacy, and we'll get on to all the rest of it next week, since we are used to a world now where so much news and political debate is carried out through the written word, whatever the medium. The first thing to note is that in our period, reading and writing don't necessarily go together, There were different reasons why you might be interested in each one of them, and reading was probably much more widespread than was writing. And if you lived in a village where your livelihood depended on your husbandry and weaving skills, why would you bother with the reading thing? So it seems obvious, but it's probably worth thinking about what the perceived benefits of literacy were at the time. OK, quite possibly at the top of the list... A person who could read was better equipped to prepare for salvation. Now, I suspect this is not why we choose to read nowadays. But after William Tyndale's gift and his heroics, you could read the word of God in the Bible yourself. Religious conservatives like Stephen Gardner and Thomas More have poo-pooed the idea that reading was important. More argued that it was irrelevant for the multitude because the illiterate multitude would not be able to benefit from it. Gardiner argued that images adequately supplied the needs of writing. But come on, imagine you had been prevented from reading the word of the creator and his people, and suddenly you had a direct line to God. Would you not be interested in that? Surely you would. And by the end of the 16th century, there was increasing encouragement to read the Bible at home. If you remember the anti-popery discussion in episode 329, ministers firmly believed that the weapon of the Antichrist was ignorance and superstition. Reading was a godly tool to bring the light of truth into the lives of ordinary people. So, parents should teach children. Masters should teach servants. Those who could read and write should help their associates who could not. Of course, there are other, more immediately practical reasons why reading was helpful rather than saving your immortal soul. 
the 17th century world was increasingly dominated by written instructions and documentation. We've talked, just for instance, about the growing use of copyhold tenancies from the 16th century. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to read the terms of your tenancy for yourself rather than your landlord just saying, just sign here, don't worry, it'll all be fine. And of course, the same in spades in the world of artisans, merchants and contracts. There was once an argument, I think, also that the discovery of printing itself encouraged reading. And while I'm not sure that this theory attracted universal agreement, there certainly was much more material now available, and some of it at more affordable prices, although it doesn't do to overestimate that. Books were still premium items. But look, broadsheets, ballads, much less so, much more affordable. And then there were subjects like husbandry and estate management appearing now in printed form, and you could hope to improve your lot and your income by reading. If you could read, you could also engage in a much broader range of affairs and cope better with the complexities of the world, basically. To get deeply practical, it also meant that if you were in trouble, you could read the neck verse, which could help you avoid the noose in extremis. The argument for writing as opposed to reading was a little bit more dicey, but it deepened the opportunity for interaction with the Word of God. You might annotate your Bible, for example. Literacy was said to benefit civil society, allowing you to sign petitions. Educational writers like Roger Ascham, who corresponded with Lady Jane Grey, argued that civil disobedience would decline if young people were properly educated and learned and able to understand better their responsibilities to both God and humanity. Writing allowed a much more complex interaction with neighbours and society to maintain written records of family businesses or farming activities, records that could help ordinary people become richer. Here is a comment from Nicholas Breton in 1618. This is all the reasons we go to school for. To read common prayers at church and set down common prices at markets. Write a letter and make a bond. Set down the day of our births, our marriage day, and make our wills when we are sick for the disposing of our goods when we are dead. Ferdinand But it is worth noting that by the 15th and 16th centuries, the demand for literacy remained undeniably sluggish. Who needed to read, to mend a fence, work a loom, tell the weather? The rich oral culture had a long tradition of jokes, stories, proverbs, customs and ceremonies. And nor was it necessary to be literate to be devout. Plus, and this will be crucial I think, being unable to read and write could be mitigated by access to people who could on your behalf. Historical studies of literacy once tended to be very qualitative. Scotland, for example, has a very deeply embedded tradition that literacy was much stronger there than in England and the continent because of the focus on providing schools in the Reformation, declarations by ministers of the importance of literacy and the greater numbers of universities to educate ministers. But then along came a Europe-wide discussion about the use of signatures to determine the level of literacy. So basically, if someone could sign their name, it was agreed to be a sign that they could read and write. 
Now, there are lots of caveats. Obviously, maybe someone who signed their name could do little more. Probably there were many who could read but not sign their name. But it was agreed that the ability to sign probably usually indicated ability to write more widely. It probably meant that since reading was an easier skill to acquire, a signature indicated ability to write. A signature indicated ability to read. It was a simple and effective measure for comparison also. The use of a quantitative measure brought a lot of light to the level of literacy in early modern Europe, and David Cress's book, Literacy and the Social Order, did so particularly in England. Without wanting to butcher the subject too much, the book made a few points. Firstly, that generally speaking, the levels of literacy in England rose from a very low level, around 10% for men at the end of the 15th century, to maybe 20% by the end of the 16th century, 30% in the mid-17th, and to about 45% by 1714, around tea time. Literacy levels were strongly gendered. Women were almost universally unable to sign their names in 1500, and by 1600, only some 10% could do so, the proportion rising to about 25% by 1714, around tea time. For interest's sake, R.A. Houston's work on Scottish literacy rather exploded the national myth that Scotland was unusually precocious in all of this. Historians, it must be said, can be irritating that way. He calculated that by the mid-17th century, perhaps 10% of adult males in the Highlands were signature literate, and 25% in the Lowlands. And by the mid-18th century, those figures had risen to 40 to 45% and 65%, with a similar disparity then between men and women as in England. David Cressy found that social status, occupation and location strongly affected the likelihood of your level of literacy. There is so much complexity here that this episode is an almost criminal act of summarisation, but broadly... By the mid-17th century, male lay literacy amongst the gentry, so the upper classes as it were, would have been almost universal. Among yeomen and tradesmen and craftsmen, it would be very high, maybe around 60 to 70%. Then lower down the social scale, husbandmen would have much lower levels, let's say 30%, and labourers were almost universally illiterate. The same relationships broadly applied to women also, with the same gender equality we talked about earlier. Cressy also found the reasons for literacy deeply complicated. There is a relationship between large urban centres and higher levels of literacy. London is an obvious example. But there was no great sign of any difference between smaller towns and rural areas. The type of town, market centres, ports, administrative centres, had a big, a big impact on literacy. On the basis of evidence from Essex in the 17th century, there pre appears to be a broad connection between higher levels of literacy and educational facilities, which I guess you would expect, and also with the strength of Puritanism, stronger the higher, and also economic structure. Even the relationship between access to schooling and literacy, though, wasn't actually entirely clear partly because even if the parish or dame school did exist in, a, in an area, 
People's priorities were still to have children helping out at home or with the harvest and so on, and so they probably didn't get to attend the school very much at all. Another imponderable in all of this was the impact and expectations of family, of course, always one of the most important factors in educational attainment. So, religious and political interest may well have been nurtured in certain families, and the ethos and culture of the family made a difference. So, for example, rather later, there was a very strong 19th century tradition in the north of England towards the importance of literacy, which led to comparatively high levels of literacy there. OK, so you have the picture, just generally. Literacy was high among certain classes and groups, higher up the social scale. It was significant amongst others, but it was negligible among the labouring classes. Which means we can move on next to think about how news and political comment moved out in society, if at all. And that is what we will do next time. But you don't want to leave now. No, no, no. Let me give you a sneak peek into the filthy, vile and corrupt slurry that is my private life and tell you that late last year, we here in Swinkham were visited by one Stephen Mileson, a thoroughly lovely landscape historian who you might remember from my interview last year as the author of the book Peasant Perceptions of Landscape, a book available from AUP, which I expect should be on every good History of England listener's bookshelf. Anyway, there was a shady deal struck, like those you scratch my back and so on deals in big business. As opposed, though, to several million quid left under a park bench in used fivers, we agreed that we would help Stephen listen to the bells of St Botolph's Church, Swinkham, and help him measure how far away they could be heard from. And in return, he would walk round the parish for a couple of hours and try to point out local features in the landscape of interest. I know, pretty dodgy. Parliamentary Corruption Committee referral on the way. Well, Mark and I took him up to a feature called the Cuckoo Pen, which is a story in itself, it has to be said. There are a load of them in South Oxfordshire, and although there's a theory that they reflect a bit of local folklore about capturing the first cuckoo and thereby the return of spring, no one really knows what it means. Anyway, let me tell you though, people have tried. Anyway, on the way, walking up the ancient Ridgeway Path, I was ranting about countryside access and common rights, as you do. Stephen then mentioned the stints that people might have over common land. Well, interesting, I thought. And so here is something about the word stint. I have snuck in a weekly word for you. OK, stint, as in don't stint on the bread sauce, wherein the meaning is, of course, a limit not to limit the quantity of delicious clove-flavoured milky stodge. And this is where the origin of the word comes in, because rights of common presented landowners and communities with a challenge on how to allocate a limited resource across many people. Let's say their shared pasture, when cottagers, who had very little land of their own, want to graze their pigs or cows to help keep body and soul stitched together. So, there were a bunch of villagers, all wanting as much of this common resource as they could. So how did you control that? Well, there was one way, which was to relate the use of summer resource to the amount of animals that a villager could sustain over winter, and that was the most common medieval approach. 
and it kind of made sense. A villager wouldn't overgraze a pasture if all the animals would die anyway during the winter. But from early modern times, a new approach developed which does seem rather more logical. First of all, you decide how much grazing the common land would bear. I don't know, 15 cows, 40 sheep and a pig, whatever. And then find an equitable way of divvying it up based on the landholding size of each villager. Much more logical. Everyone knows where they are. So, from late medieval days, this approach begins to take over and each villager is assigned a measure of their rights. So, the right to graze three cows on the common, for example. That measure is described as, you guessed it, a stint. So my stint was to be able to graze three cows on the common. So, going back to the bread sauce example, what you're really saying is, don't be restricted by the strictly apportioned measure that we have all allocated by an equitable division of bread sauce between everyone sitting salivating at the table gives a bit more. An extra cow, sort of thing. Although stinting seems thoroughly logical, it's worth bearing in mind that the English are intrinsically scatterbrained and logical, and so the other suck-it-and-see approach about overwintering cows was still dominant in 46% of common land by 1958. But stinting did grow, and it had some unforeseen consequences. So, once you'd defined what a stint was, well, it became a measurable commodity, and as a measurable, definable thing, it was therefore tradable. So, people from outside the community, or indeed within it, might buy up stints, and before you knew it, hey, I can't graze my cow anymore, why can't I have any bread sauce? In addition, landowners, in the way that landowners do, the little tinkers, might decide that they implement the stint system so that they could, as we say, measure them, define them, and then take them away, which they did sometimes. Or indeed, they could take them away and then sell them to outsiders with attractively large amounts of cash, like, I don't know, Russian oligarchs trying to avoid pointy umbrellas. And in the words of Neil Diamond, money talks, although I am given to understand that it doesn't sing, dance, nor does it walk. Be that as it may, landowners might well consider that community values are far too intangible when compared to a nice case of used rubles in large denominations. And so stenting became part of the commercialisation of agriculture, which has various impacts, too numerous to list here. Anyway, so next time you are someone not to stint, you now know that you are part of a long tradition of measuring and apportioning shared common rights. And go easy on the bread sauce. That is it for this week, folks. I'm afraid the next episode is in a fortnight's time because I've come out of the Christmas period badly prepared and I would like to apologise to all of you. I really feel we need to get on with it now. I mean, come on. I am rather conscious that you're all waiting for Charlie Boy and the several wars of as many kingdoms as you can shake a stick at. And yet, here we are, noodling away with some court scandal when we could be talking about weighty stuff like the KJV or, frankly, skimpy stuff like Buckingham's hose. Anyway, sorry and all, we'll do better. Thank you for listening, everyone. See you all in a fortnight for more fun.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.